Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Our text today, 25b, this was to show God's Righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise you for being able to clearly see the work that you did on the cross at Calvary. You took on the full weight of, the full wrath, you satisfied the full wrath at the cross. All of it, every sin for your people paid for. Lord, we praise you for that, for we know in eternity future, your wrath will be poured out for all eternity on those who don't know you. And yet you took on the fullness of that wrath. We can do nothing but praise you. Our boasting is excluded. May we be humbled today as a church. May this church together, we, us, be humbled and brought low as you are lifted high. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, with a simple, straightforward reading of the book of Romans, just open the book and start reading from beginning to end. Don't stop. Start at verse one and travel all the way through the book. And this letter, remember it's a letter to the churches of Rome, what we now call the book of Romans. All would agree, after just a simple reading, the Apostle Paul penned this letter for the purity and the glory of the gospel. He has 
laid out the pure, unaltered glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will see that again and again and again. And from chapter 118 through chapter 320, which we finished up a couple weeks ago, Paul placed all of mankind, all of us, all of mankind in the same arena, right? Not just being in sin, but being under sin and the eternal wrath of God. And so all men, all women, all Jews, all Gentiles, enslaved, in bondage, uh, condemned to hell if left in our state of being separate from this God. And so right before Paul begins this section, he quickly stated to the church in Rome and to us, the reader, what we have to look back to, right? Romans 1, 16 and 17, he kind of just threw that out to us quickly. We're not, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for salvation. And then he comes back to that after he lays out the weight of our sin. And so two weeks ago, Paul did come back to this, right? Starting in verse 21 through verse 25, he answered the almighty question that I brought up a couple weeks ago that all of us have to answer, all humanity has to answer, which is how can sinful man be right with a holy God? As we take our final breath, which we will all do, all must answer this standing face to face with God. How can one who is sinful be righteous, right? How can we be righteous or right in a standing with a God who is holy. So two weeks ago, we saw Paul was clear in saying, man must have the righteousness of God in order to obtain a right standing with God and as we stand before God. And it comes through, it was obtained by the blood of Jesus and it comes through faith in Jesus alone. And so many who would have received this letter may have a tendency, right? They received the letter to to believe or to fall back into a trap of thinking that a right standing with God comes through an attempt to, right, live up to the law or believing that somehow because of their Jewishness that they're just going to get kind of a free pass. And so two weeks ago, Paul cleared the air clearly and was abundantly precise that all have sinned and fall short of God's holy and perfect standard. And the only way that any of us can be just or justified, right, declared right, the judicial mindset here or understanding that he declares us right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You hear that phrase all the time around here, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this redemption, this redeeming work, this right buying back out of the slave marketplace, purchasing out of or being under sin, was accomplished and applied only through God himself. For he's the only one that could do this himself, for he is the righteous one. And so Jesus satisfied the wrath of God at the cross and justified us by his own blood. And we see this in texts like Ephesians 2 and confirmation. But now in Christ Jesus, who were once far off, brought near by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ, the literal blood of Jesus, which we will get into. He said this to the church in Colossae. He delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Domain here is a fascinating word. It means a specific area or a a sphere, if you want to say, in which those in that sphere or in that area are controlled by that who leads that area or that sphere. And so God delivered us from the domain in which was controlled by another, Satan, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and accomplished that through the blood of Jesus, redeeming us, forgiving us of all sin, past, present, and future. And so our sin was what we call imputed to Jesus at the cross. It was imputed to him and his righteousness, his right standing with God at the cross was then imputed to those who believe, which we call double imputation, right? Imputed, imputed, that's amazing. And so the heartbeat of Paul's letter is undoubtedly the purity and the glory of the gospel. For that is why he so desperately, if you remember, he wanted to come so badly time and again. He knew that he needed to be clear on this gospel. I wanted to come to you again and again because Jews and Gentiles and the wrestle that they're having, the only thing that's going to unify them is the purity of the gospel. And so may we not forget as we consider that, that this gospel itself is that which drives the church here in Rome and all churches, churches into unity. You can't have true unity in the church if the gospel isn't pure and preached. And so don't let us put out of mind the mix here of Jews and Gentiles. These were real people. This isn't just a letter that the Lord dropped out of the air and gave to us. And then, no, these are not figurative people. These are real people. These are real churches. And we know historically that the racial, if you want to say, an ethnic divide of the, probably maybe the biggest one in the history of the world between Jews and Gentiles would have had to have been at the forefront of Paul's mind. He knew that there was great potential and great tendency to have division in the church when there's Jews and there's Gentiles coming together in Rome. Remember, they got kicked out. They got dispersed at one point. They come back together. And now somehow they have to figure this out, that they have to come back together in one church with one God. And the only thing that's going to hold them together because we're fickle, we're sinners, we're humans, by the way, is the unaltered gospel. And so there's a reason why Paul opened this letter, not just saying how eager he was to preach the gospel, but because he knew the gospel is that which is gonna hold the church together. That is which we stand and fall upon. If I I can just get the clarity of the gospel to them, the true, pure, clear, glorious gospel, which humbles man and brings God high, then they'll stop worrying about all those silly differences of being Jews and Gentiles. So the only thing the church, again, can stand on, which will humble us, and that's my desire today, that it humbles Faith Bible Church and presses us together as lights in a dark world that's watching us, by the way, is Christ and his gospel. And so as a church, as our church more fully understands and comprehends, right, the height, the depth, 
the width of this gospel not only understands it, but we actually believe it. It's the core of our church. The more unified this church will be and will become. And so the good news brings humility as we depend on God more, which drives us to him more and drives us to looking outward from ourselves that much greater. We would all agree the Jews and the Gentiles needed to do that. And so with that said, let's continue where we left off last week in verse 25b, where we'll see our first point. God is both just and justifier. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So this is pointing back to the obviously previous five verses. Man made right with God at the cross, which it says this shows God's righteousness or it declares or it gives proof to. So Jesus purchased his people who were under sin through his own blood as he took on God's wrath, which this showed God's righteousness. So the cross displays that he, Jesus, is the righteous one. God is both just and right. He's completely and perfectly pure and right in his character and in his justice. Now remember, as Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens this letter to the church in Rome, Paul being a Jew himself, we remember his background, he could see, or it appears to me, see potential for having certain questions come up, kind of like a good lawyer. You have to predetermine the things that are going to kind of come at you, and then you have to be ready to give a reasonable defense. And you're a really good lawyer if you go after those before they're even asked of you. I got to experience that many times during that week. And so he could see the Jews having certain questions or thinking to themselves, wait a second. If God is a good God, and if God is a just God, how is it that God somewhat passed over or allowed the sins of Old Testament or Old Covenant saints? And their consequences were kind of just set aside. Paul, you've been clear that the law and the system of Judaism does not make us as sinful people right with God. And if God is good and righteous, that sin cannot just be set aside. In God's eternal judicial courtroom, forgiveness cannot be paid or given and sin not be paid for. Let me say that again. In God's eternal judicial courtroom, forgiveness cannot be given and sin not be paid for. It's just not the gates of our bondage, the doors were open and the sin wasn't paid for. You have been clear that through Christ alone and the atoning sacrifice on the cross, God cannot overlook sin. But did God overlook the sins of people under the old covenant? And so there's a sense where Paul's like this, again, good lawyer, ready to answer these questions and this potential that God's righteous character could have been called into question here. And so some may be thinking, just like the prophets of old, where is this God of justice? Where was the God of justice? When we all know under the old covenant, there were all kinds of injustices that took place. 
Why was there not justice upon all those in sin under the old covenant, let alone the really evil, wicked ones of those days? We can all read it. Why does it appear that God was silent when the evil Egyptians, let's say, took my ancestors and took them into captivity? For those at some point, right, some of them had faith at some point. And so did their sins of doing that just kind of get a pass? Did God just pass over their sin without penalty and it wasn't actually paid for? Is not Jesus, who is God, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yes. Christ is a righteous and just God, and he didn't overlook these things, but yes, for a time, he passed them over. It says there, in his divine forbearance, or you could translate that in his divine patience, or in God's divine delay, he did not, he delayed official wrathful punishment as he had for a time, yes, passed over. We may recall this in Acts 17, actually. We went over this, verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. And so the time of God overlooking refers to the sins committed before the death of Christ from Adam up to Christ. Even Abraham, who we know, which we'll see actually next week, believed God and God declared him righteous. Wait, how was Abraham's sins dealt with? Was there not wrath on his sins? How did God deal with his sins? Well, the Lundus Baptist Confession of 1689 states this. The price of redemption, and I'm not sure if this is on your screen, if not, just listen, was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him, Jesus, as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yes, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in time covered the sins of Old Testament saints, those who had faith alone in Christ alone, including Abraham, which again, we'll get into next week. Jesus's death satisfied fulfilled God's wrath and took on the full weight of God's wrath, the completeness of it at the cross. And so this covers and covered their sins entirely and completely. And yes, Old Testament saints, Old Covenant saints too can stand righteous before God because of the sin that was paid for at the cross. We know under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant system that um, that sacrificial system, the blood and bulls of, of goats was impossible to take away sins. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Old Testament stains, if you want to say, or, or sins. We can't stand on those things. And that was said in the book of Hebrews. Actually, if you would turn with me there real quick to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning there, he is making an argument here that would be brought up by Jews in particular. 
Why is those people's sins, my ancestors' sins, how were their sins paid for? Did you just give them a pass? Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse nine with me. Jesus says here, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Under the old covenant, under the new covenant. And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jump down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have full assurance. Under the, the blood of bulls and goats, they had no assurance. To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, that is which gives us under the old covenant, under the new covenant, full assurance in Christ alone. So God did not overlook them. And he wanted to answer that question. Clearly, Paul brings it up. But he delayed the official punishment of the wrath of God on his son. And so Paul's saying the atonement, the blood of Jesus at the cross, silences any questions or slander against God that he would have been unjust or an unfair judge under the old covenant. Thomas Schreiner said the death of Jesus vindicates or defends God's righteousness and justice in the present era. God demonstrated that he is righteous and that his goodness and holiness have not been compromised. End quote. So with, without the cross and the wrath of God that God in that of Jesus, the righteous one took on, God's righteous character would have been in jeopardy without the cross. But Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, showed that the righteousness of God, as both he can be just and the justifier. Look at verse 26 with me. It was Jesus coming, taking on the wrath of God at the cross was to show his righteousness at that present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And yes, we are spending the, a bit more of our time on these first two verses because this is absolutely, we have to be crystal clear on this. The cross, the blood was shed, showed Jesus was the perfect and the only representative and substitute to satisfy God's Wrath. It was the only way God could satisfy his wrath. Jesus was fully man. He took on God's wrath that had to and has to be paid for in order for God to be just, or he's not a just judge. He's a bad judge. And so in this, it showed and defended that he did not just turn a blind eye right, and shoves sin under the rug. That's why when we present the gospel, you cannot just talk about forgiveness because if nothing was paid for, right, God's not a just judge. We have to talk about repentance. We have to talk about sins being paid for by a literal Jesus on the cross. 
Christ is righteous and just and God's wrath was actually satisfied, right? There was a time of passing over, but because Jesus was not just God, but was fully man, the wrath of God then was fulfilled on the sins of men. And in turn, God's righteous character or his pure character was upheld by what he did. But also, because Jesus is fully God, he then can rightly, he has then the license, if you want to say, he is allowed to, because he is God and he's not just man, to then declare those who are justified. He has every right to be just and the justifier. He's not just just, he's allowed to then declare. And so at the cross, here's what happened. His justice and his mercy met at the cross. And we see this in the Old Testament. Even Psalm 85.10 says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss together. Psalm 89 brings us up. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so if a literal cross did not happen, if literal wrath and the shedding of blood did not happen, God would not be just and righteous because we would agree we literally sin. God would not be a just and righteous God for sin has consequences. And so someone had to actually pay those things. This is so important to be clear on because there are whole camps and churches, major groups, which attempt to convince that Jesus's death was not literal, that it was just a figurative death. We don't want to look that Jesus actually went through the literal shedding of blood, right? The brutal wrath that was shed on Calvary. It's only figurative. He forgave us with a figurative forgiveness. But if Jesus was not fully human, he could not have been the perfect representative to bear literal wrath, which the wrath of God would not have been then literally satisfied, which would not have enabled then God to declare people actually justified, which would leave us still what? Actually separate from God. If Jesus was not fully God and actually took on God's wrath and actually raised him from the dead, if all that was just figurative, then we too will just figuratively raise from the dead, but not actually raise from the dead. I don't know about you, but I want to actually raise from the dead after I die because I'm actually going to die, right? So if this is not a literal death and a literal resurrection, then God's one big liar and he's not God at all. It was only figurative. And this is one big joke and we might as well go home. But no, Galatians 2 tells us, I've been crucified, actually crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the actual Jesus, son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, he actually came and he actually did that. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Yes, justice actually was satisfied through Jesus' death of deaths. Mankind's sin 
the saints under the old covenant and from the cross forward were imputed to Jesus. Justice and redemption was and is paid in full and appeased at the cross. And so God's amazing love and mercy and grace through the one and only one who could satisfy the law requires and the demands, he did it. The cross enables Christians, Christ or Christ to be the justifier and then say, he's mine. He's mine forever because I paid it forever. If he didn't actually do that, we're not looking good in the end. And have you ever considered that all sins in the history of the world from Genesis 3 on will experience the wrath of God? Every single sin. In order for God to be just, in order for a judge to be a good judge and a righteous judge, all sins will suffer. For those who by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, Jesus paid it all. For those who do not know Jesus as Savior, your sins, which Jesus satisfied for his children, your sins will be paid for literally for all eternity. We know that. Either hell is a literal place, or again, Jesus is a liar. Matthew 25 says it's eternal. Again, in verse 46, it's eternal punishment. In Mark chapter nine, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Consider this, those who have been brought into the church, into this church, nothing you or I have done or do has satisfied our sin, nothing. No background check, no nationality, no ethnic tie, no family tie to whoever awesome Christian parents we have. None of that satisfies our sin. The only thing we brought to the cross was what? Our sin, our sin. The only thing that was brought to, it, to the cross was our sin. The only thing that brought us into the kingdom was Christ. And so due to the fullness of depth of understanding the gospel, which I did not exercise today, and none of us will exercise the full understanding the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in response to this, Paul says, what in the world do you think you have to boast in, Jews and Gentiles? What do we have to boast in, church? Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. That's a really strong statement. No more, guys. Stop thinking highly of yourselves because you're not anything without Christ. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. Why are we not getting it? Again, I'm speaking here like he's speaking to them. But by the law of faith in Christ. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, we live in a world since Genesis 3 that mankind wants credit for everything and anything. It's our nature. We all want recognized, right? We all want pats on the back. We all want trophies. By the way, young people in here that want trophies, like we don't stop wanting trophies as we get older because we have that sin nature. It's just we hide the trophies. They aren't like out there as much. We just kind of mask them a little bit and we do it in creative ways. Trophies matter to us for some reason. We have invisible trophies as we compare career accomplishments and our kids. We compare bank accounts and even our bodies. We not only compare, we want others to know that what we have accomplished and how we've accomplished it 
accomplishment it and how much effort we put into it. We want people to know these things because of our sin. And Paul says, church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, the understanding of your rightness with God who declared you righteous, why would we boast if you really actually understand this? For it was no effort of you doing anything. If you're boasting, may I ask what you're boasting in? Jews, I hope you heard me when I asked you if you were any better off. Are we clear on this? It's not by the law of works. And then Paul answers his own question there in Romans 3. You can see it, I think. No, not at all, for we have already charged all are under sin. I hope there's not an ounce of pride in you. Remember verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. Gentiles, were you listening? Church, right? Church, Jews and Gentiles in the same church. Jews, are you listening? Gentiles, were you listening? In verses, right, chapter one, verses 18 to 32, suppression of the truth, dishonoring God, unthankfulness, thought you were wise, you were actually a bunch of fools. Sexual immorality was running wild amongst you guys. You were filled with the manner of unrighteousness, evil, deceitfulness, your gossip, slanders, all these things that he runs through. And then in 1 Corinthians, remember, he says, and such were some of you. Jews and Gentiles, church in Rome. Why are you boasting? Why are you having dissension? Why do you think you're better than each other? He says, it's excluded in the gospel. And what we look like in our abilities, in our accomplishments, in who we know, all that has to be laid aside. And we come in naked, if you want to say, into the church. And we have nothing to boast. And all we do is we stand in one big circle. We face each other. And ultimately, we face the king in the middle of the circle because we have nothing to offer. It goes along with a song called All Sufficient Merit that I think you can see on the screen. I'm not going to read the entire thing because of time. But in it, you see there, my righteousness, I forfeit, right? The law could never save any of us. It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. Paid in full, all sufficient merit. Now my own because of what he did. I lay down my garments, anything, any empty boast. Good works, all corrupted but I'm just dressed in my Lord Jesus. His righteousness is mine. All sufficient merit, it's not my own. So Faith Bible Church, may we as a church consider our calling. Consider who we are in Christ because of Christ in turn, all glory goes to Christ. Consider what we have brought to our salvation, our sin. If you wanna boast in your sin, don't. We're not anything special without Christ. At the end of the day, we are standing right beside, as Solomon told his sons, without him, you're all nothing, and this is all vanity. Paul told that to the church of Corinth when they were a mess. Would you guys consider your calling? There weren't a bunch of you guys who were wise. It's what John read. You weren't anything special, you weren't noble. Did you pick what time period you were born into or what family you were born into or what advantages you have? No. I couldn't laugh, but as I was reading Charles Swindoll in this section, 
and he read these lyrics. Imagine this, if we sang these, song, this, these lyrics in heaven. When we've been there 10,000 years, being paid for our hard-earned fun, we've no less days to sing our praise and boast of all that we've done. You know, we laugh at that, and I think I heard Terry. How could you not, right? We laugh at that, but sad to say, there are lots of churches out there that sing songs kind of like that. Paul said again in Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in the Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If anyone could boast, it could have been Paul, the Jew of all Jews. We're new creatures, new creation with new hearts under the Lord. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer. You know, it's kind of like I was thinking being invited over for dinner. A large group of people eat the meal that was presented and you were invited over and you try to somehow take credit for that which you didn't prepare. Or you take credit for the food which everyone's raving about and you don't point to the actual chef who prepared the food. You point to the one who created the, or you don't point to the one who created this amazing meal and dessert, but you want some sort of credit for it, even though you had nothing to do with it. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified, right? By faith, apart from works of the law. We stand alone on faith in Christ alone, being made right with God by Christ alone. And so when we are boasting, and boasting, we don't use that term nowadays, I realize that. Like, I don't tell my kids, hey, stop boasting. Okay, we don't use that. But when pride creeps in, where do we look? Inward and downward. Our faith in Christ, paired with considering and thinking upon the gospel, it should drive us collectively, as a church, to humble ourselves, to come to our knees, and to be looking upward towards him and outward towards one another. Our posture as a church should be upward and outward towards one another. We should be on the lookout, if you want to say, all the time, outward and upward to please our king who looked, by the way, he humbled himself and came downward and died. And so we look True unity of the church only happens when we have the gospel at the forefront of our mind. Our God is one as he begins to wrap up this section. He reminds them who this God is again. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? I can't help but think there's a bit of sarcasm here by Paul. So Jews, you think he's just God of you guys? You think you're actually that special? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. In other words, Faith Bible Church, is he just the God of us or us or us or is he the God of us? Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Jews and Gentiles, our God is the God of the Gentiles and the Jews. Right? Jews and Gentiles, our God, Paul is saying, is the God of the Gentiles and the Jews. He's restating in many ways what he has 
pressed home so hard. Again, we look at this letter to the Romans as the purity of the gospel, and it is. But the reason he's driving at this is because he knows unity is at stake. Romans 1.1. Just quickly, I will highlight these phrases, right? Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Verse 7 to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, all of the saints. Verse eight, for all of you, right? Through Jesus Christ, for all of you. Verse 14 and 15, both to Greeks and barbarians. This is this thread that's running thing, both to the wise and to the foolish. Verse 16, to the Jew and to the Greek. Chapter two, verse nine, for every human being who does evil, the Jew and the Greek. And then we could continue on both Jews and Greeks under sin in verse nine. And by the way, that's just what we've gotten to so far. Paul has this emphatic statement to the Galatian church when he was, there was a sense where we would say the letter to the church of Galatia, he was kind of frustrated. They left their first love. They're setting aside the gospel. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. None of you guys are special. There's you are all collectively one in Jesus. They have nothing to boast in. A guy named F.F. F. Bruce says this, when this is fully grasped, it can be seen that men have no ground for self-congratulation as they contemplate the fullness of the way of salvation. We serve one God, that which is Jesus. This would have triggered their mind as you hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. That one sovereign, loving, gracious, patient, good, faithful God is the one whom through his only son satisfied his wrath and collectively Jews by faith, the circumcised, right? Gentiles through faith, the uncircumcised, men and women, but most importantly, we call ourselves blood-bought Christians. We have the privilege of serving this one God together. Don't miss the point that in many ways, this is a unity letter. It is a gospel letter, but it is a unity letter driving them to understand what Jesus did, which humbles them and brings God high. The doctrine and clarity and purity of the gospel, Paul continues to press justification by faith alone in Christ alone should humble every single person sitting in this room and standing. Believing this brings this. One God we in turn look outward, we set our petty differences aside, and we run after each other because that glorifies the king. We should be together rejoicing as Paul will in Romans 5. Watch how many times Paul says we or us in this. Therefore, since we, the church, have been justified by faith, we have peace. He doesn't say you individually, no, we, 
Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. And we stand, we stand together. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our sufferings. Hard things are gonna happen. We come together. We call out to one another. We encourage one another. Endurance, right, together produces character, right? It produces hope together. Our hearts are together, our hearts. The Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And sad to say, we live in an individualized culture that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ feels like we have to run this race alone. And Paul says, stop doing it, by the way. Together, we rejoice. And he finishes with, do we over overthrow the law by this faith? Do we overthrow by setting, like the law doesn't matter? Why did we even have the law? We, we studied that already. He says, by no means. We actually uphold the law because the law was never meant to be upheld by our works. We, for some reason, the law has been a confusing thing. I'm not sure where it happened in history, but the law was never meant to be the gospel. It was always meant to point us to the one, Jesus, as I stated two weeks ago, somehow we, we've misunderstood this. I'm not saying we, this church, but the, the general understanding, it, it wasn't meant to live up to for we can't live up to it. The law is simply a reflection of God's holy standards, which are impossible for mankind to live up to. The, the, putting the law out there everywhere does not make anyone right with Jesus. It simply reveals how far they are from Jesus. Galatians 3, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified. It points us to the king. Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He's the only one who could fulfill the law. The representative, the fully God-man. We cannot be justified in the law. We cannot live up to the law. That's why we depend on the one who did live and fulfill the law. He said this two weeks ago, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So the law just reveals to mankind how far away we are from the lawgiver. And so as we, by God's grace, have faith in the one who did fulfill the law, God places his spirit in us and then we uphold the law as we respond to the amazing grace that God showed us together as a church. Romans 8, and we'll end with this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians sitting here. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You guys can't do it. I can't do it. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, his church, who then walk, not according to the flesh, but in oneness, according to the spirit. And so God in his goodness and kindness, nothing of ourselves, save us from our sins, all tribes and tongues, Guys, I hope we walk out of here understanding not just the gospel, but what Paul is pushing this church to, which is oneness. He's not just throwing the gospel out there and says, go your own way now. No, he's saying, 
If you understand this thing, you go this way together. If you're sitting here and do not have faith in Christ alone and what he did at the cross, those sins will be paid for in all eternity. I say that in the most loving, like begging way. You need Jesus. You can't do it. You cannot live up to the law. You are separate from a holy God. And the wrath that was satisfied on the cross, it's somehow impossible for my mind to understand that for all eternity, God's wrath will not be satisfied on those who don't know Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. I pray I, this church, continues to be humbled. Lord, not in a humiliating way, but humbled, brought low, recognizing that we are nothing without you and what you did at the cross. May we be a church that embraces collectively us, we are Lord Jesus. And then we live out from that. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. Please, Lord, please, 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 we beg you, save them. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a reminder that today John will be uh, in the meet and greet. And so he will be there to greet you and uh, hopefully have an opportunity to have gospel conversations with you. And I think it only makes sense to end with, obviously, a verse that we all know, I think, very well, right? But what then shall we say to these things? Be reminded, if God is for us, and he is, who can be against us? And so I pray as we leave here today, remember where God is for us. He paid it at the cross. Let me pray quickly and you are dismissed. Lord, thank you again. We praise you, you are for us. For if you're against us, that is a scary thing. So thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.